Greetings, ladies and metalgents, and welcome to this latest rendition of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Now, on to the science fiction. Cells, written by Crumb JD. Exerted from the report of the Chief Science Officer of the First Garlax Ambassadorial Mission to Earth. Entry 1. First contact with the humans is going pretty well. They are not, as far as we can determine, so warlike that they would rather fight than negotiate or trade. They aren't possessed by any religious monomania that will cause any problems in the greater galactic community. While their culture has its quirks, more on that in a moment, there's nothing truly objectionable in it. Unfortunately, I had to cause problems for the entire mission. I have at least preliminary evidence that humans may be physiologically compelled towards uncontrolled colonization. This is a strange and extreme claim, and based on the reactions of the other members of the contact team, some background may be in order. The biggest quirk of human civilization is the practice of uh, quarantine. It's a series of protocols they've asked us to adhere to that are designed to keep microscopic life forms from moving from the humans or human-controlled areas to members of our team and our habited areas. The ambassadorial team thought this was all pretty insane, but they followed the human protocols anyway. Our head ambassador said we were lucky they weren't trying to form some sort of family tie with our delegation. There's nothing worse than being forced to marry the daughter of a planetary leader with tentacles in all the wrong places. However, well, it may come as a surprise to the layman, microscopic life forms do, in fact, exist. They're actually fairly important. Current biological theory holds all modern life is descended from such life forms. Some macro life forms even exhibit microscale self-reproducing components very early on in their life cycle. However, microscopic life is, almost by definition, very fragile. It tends to persist in only the most forgiving of conditions. When it wants to branch out, it bands together manufacturing macroscale structures, which eventually become complex enough to independently self-replicate. These structures, aka us, take over the environment and outcompete the smaller brethren. Now here's when things get interesting, because I knew this. When the humans made their odd request, I decided to check the room previously utilized by the humans to see if there was any such life presence. I found it. Odder still, the microscopic self-reproducing structures I located most readily were part of the humans. They had shed desiccated flakes of their outermost layer and placed under a simple microscope. These flakes proved to be composed of an enormous number of microscale organisms. Most of it was metabolically inactive, but there were a few proteins that were still active. Fortunately, my sample did poorly in an ammonia environment, but it is very strange and I am recommending everyone treat quarantine as more than a human quirk. The custom may make sense if the human's derived microlife is capable of creating independent colonies. This is what I meant earlier by involuntary colonization. I've got some experiments planned to confirm or refute that possibility. 
I'll probably refute it, but I'm being careful here. I'm also going to look into the role of micro-life in human society. My current theory is that what we thought was the outer surface of the humans is actually a carefully cultured layer of micro-life. It could fill the role of decoration. As I say, micro-scale life forms are very fragile, so the ability to maintain such a coating would demonstrate that the dust-coated individual has significant resources to waste. Entry 2 I've just completed a search of the scientific data provided to us by the human delegation. The data is heavily censored, poorly translated, and I'm only one being, so I've only ingested a small portion of it. Still, I'm somewhat shaken. If I understand this correctly, the humans are entirely composed of microscale lifeforms. What we have been thinking of individuals are actually vast collections of self-reproducing cells. These cells can take in nutrients, excrete waste, and split right down the middle to become two cells. Each one contains enough information to make another copy of the human. These cells also have a function for the larger being. That's at least some relief as it explains why most of the human skin cells I examined earlier were dead. Apparently, you need a nutrient solution if you want to make a tissue culture. That's growing a human tissue from a few scraps of it, I think. Or maybe that was cloning. Anyway, I'm fairly certain both procedures take a scrap of discarded human and grow more human from it. However, that's where the good news ends. Humans are rather more fragile than us, but if you break or cut one, its cells will repair it, and you may never know it was damaged. Their concept of medicine has only the tiniest relation to ours. The overlap is in the subfield of cybernetics, because it is almost entirely focused on supporting the self-repair process. They can recover from extraordinary levels of damage. I won't get into the concepts of disease or beneficial microflora. Those are, respectively, invaders to and non-human components of the human colonial organism. I should note that these aren't corner cases in human biology. A human individual, I'm not sure the term properly applies to them, even though they do use it, contains ten times as many non-human cells as human cells. That's by raw cell count. By mass, a human is mostly, well, human... However, I barely understand this, and what I do understand is likely to give me nightmares. I have advised the rest of the ambassadorial delegation to treat quarantine as a matter of life and death. Entry 3 I have confirmed that there is no such thing as an individual human. I did a couple different experiments to confirm this. I've got a detailed notes elsewhere, of course, but I'll summarize it here. Firstly, I produced a sample of pure H2O. Humans consume pure H2O, and it can be synthesized by reacting hydrogen with oxygen. That reaction, I should note, is a bit more exothermic than I had anticipated. I wasn't badly damaged, but I am somewhat jealous of the humans as they would apparently just get better from the small amount of damage to their carapace. If they had carapaces, I'll just wear the scar... But I digress. Once I had the H2O, I fed most of it to the human delegation. That wasn't hard, they drink during our meetings anyway. The point is, my sample started pure. I retained the unconsumed portion and examined it under a microscope. It was utterly filled with microbiological life and originated from the parent human colony. 
much tougher life, I should note, than anything found on our world. It still hated ammonia, but otherwise you could freeze it, thaw it, dry it, and rehydrate it, and some of it continued to live. I have no idea where the development of life got lost on Earth, but it ended up in a really strange place. Next, I hope to examine the materials excreted by a human. Entry 4 I have examined the materials excreted by a human. My long-form notes are available, but I don't advise you read them. Suffice to say, 1. I now know more about human plumbing than I ever wanted to. 2. Our ship will need to requisition one more spare spacesuit, as I've ejected one from the airlock. 3. Yes, I found more microbiological life. Some good has come of my research. One of the junior ambassadorial assistants was getting lax about quarantine. I showed him my most recent microscopy video. Now his approach to quarantine has the air of a religious fanaticism. Entry 5 I have solved a minor mystery with our mission. When the human delegation came aboard, we scanned them as well as we could without making it obvious. That's very standard practice. It allows us to check for weapons, get an idea of the biology of the species we're dealing with, and provides a number of other useful functions. One of those other functions is spotting how many artificial components the delegates have, which makes for a fairly good universal gauge of age. The older a creature, the more parts are worn out, and the more artificial replacements they have. Of course, it's only relative scale until you get to know the species, but it's something... If a delegation is all young members of the species, you can assume they value vitality over experience. That, or they expect the negotiations to go poorly, and they've sent you a bunch of soldiers. That gives you something to watch out for. Alternatively, there are some races that don't care strongly about their own longevity, and don't try to buy time with replacement parts. Such races are typically strongly concerned with descendants or perhaps some other family structure like a hive. Again, it's a start for negotiation. We went through all of those theories and more with the humans, but they didn't fit the mold. First, they weren't all young. The oldest member of the delegation was 100 of their years old. I think that's about 80 of ours. I don't have the conversion on hand, but I remember it something like 4 to 5 that's a very old creature. I can only name a handful of races that get that old, and by then they're almost 100% artificial. Just a brain and a cyborg body. Yet, it only had some artificial components in its mouth and at the top of one joint of the limbs that they use for moving. Do they really live for so long? We wondered. No, or at least not as long as the usual cycle of body repair would suggest. They make it to 100 or 110 of our years, still pretty good. Only then, I started wondering why they aren't totally immortal. With microbiological life that composes them is constantly changing, so why can't they just go on forever? As I understand their literature, the colony of cells that composes their body gets disorganized over time and eventually fails. But they've actually doubled their lifespans already. Their lead ambassador seemed to confirm that when I put the question to it. It expressed amusement and said, We're working on it. I guess there are advantages to being horrific freaks of nature. Entry 6
Great news, I can quit being a roadblock to the closer diplomatic ties with humans. I was thinking about those scans we took when the humans first arrived, and I recall that we couldn't do a continuous radiographic scan because the humans had required an environment that wouldn't expose them to any more than 25 millirum of radiation per day. That's really low, and we first assumed that they put that requirement on us just to keep us from scanning them. I've looked into it more. And it turns out they really do sicken if exposed to much more than that. It throws their cells into chaos and their entire colony ends up damaged. The reason for that is they store their blueprint for their bodies in a relatively fragile molecule called DNA. They can get away with this because, unlike all other life, they evolved well away from the galactic core so their star system wasn't surrounded by the energy-intensive stellar phenomena of our own skies. It's also what makes their microbiology so insanely hardy. DNA requires far less energy to manipulate than the blueprints of other known species. That's why radiation damages it. At the level of macroscale life forms, that's meaningless. But the microscale lifeforms of the core effectively spend almost their entire store of energy manipulating their blueprints and consequently can't roll around like a 20 micrometer wide tank. I'm going to write that up a little more formally for the scientific journals. But it boils down to energy. Now, microlife can withstand one very deadly thing, galactic core levels of radiation. Theirs adapted to everything else. Someone else will have to figure out how they managed to evolve in a region of space without much in the way of supernova-formed heavy battles. Anyway, it gives all the little bits of themselves that they shed all over the place a potent weakness. Sweep an area humans have occupied with a few thousand rem and you'll destroy all the DNA and you won't get a spontaneous human-derived colony. It would even work as a weapon against full-sized humans. However, I do not recommend fighting them. Some of their microscale life is sufficiently radiation-hardy to exist in our worlds, and they know how to manipulate its blueprints to deal with our environmental factors. Their bioweapons are utterly terrifying. We would have no meaningful defense against such a thing, and it would be little consolation when the radiation from the next nearby supernova cleansed our planet of whatever sludge they managed to make our tomb out of 10,000 years after we'd lost the war with them. Still, enough of that. It's an ambassador's duty to be aware of the military situation, and mine in particular to study the unique strengths and weaknesses of a race. In this case, none of that should be important. Our negotiations are set to close very soon, and we should walk away with the trade and travel deals, as well as the beginnings of a military and police cooperation. Humans are a profoundly strange lifeform, but working with them isn't so bad. I even have an idea to put to the human ambassador that I think should keep our diplomatic channels open at the end of the current round of meetings. Entry 7 The ambassador has agreed to my idea. Given that humans are basically a cooperative colony of much smaller life forms, I felt that we could take a small piece of one and use it to grow, um, the word is clone, or culture, a local representative. It would be the same thing as opening up a human embassy on our world, only we'll be starting with a being we already know. Our entire team has agreed that it would be a great step forward in our relations with the humans. 
I'm confident I can manage the technical side of this procedure. The problem with human microbiological life has been getting it to stop multiplying. Making sure it continues to multiply will be simplicity itself. Oddly, the humans were most hesitant about my plan. Probably some cultural taboo related to their quarantine procedures, the whole point of which is to keep their microflora from spreading. When I assured them I knew what I was doing, they asked me what piece I wanted. I feel anything should work, so that's what I told them. At this point, they agreed to the procedure, and later, the lead ambassador gave me something called an appendix. Their medical literature says that portion of the anatomy has no purpose. I think they may be more of the censorship I referred to earlier. First of all, what sort of species has useless parts? Second, I've studied the organ, and it's basically a tube packed with broad variety of microbiological life. I think it's a little tiny organic colony ship, probably their means of reproduction. I haven't researched reproduction much, as I was notably distracted by the other aspects of their anatomy, but it all fits. I have the appendix and a nutrient solution at room temperature now. Entry 8. The negotiations with the humans have ended and we're back on our way home. The new ambassador is growing rapidly. Entry 9. The new ambassador has attained a large mass, but it has lost all of its original human cells, and I feel the colony is disorganized. I regret to write that I probably missed a step in culturing the new human. I suppose it was overly optimistic. Learning the biology of an entire species in the time I had to study humans is probably an impossible task. Fortunately, the humans seem to have anticipated my failure. They've sent over plans for a construction of a permanent human embassy on our world. It seems things will proceed down the traditional slow route after all. The draft star for the new embassy contains the senior ambassador from our previous dealings. I suppose I'll return the subcolony when he gets here. I'm confident I can keep them alive, even if I can't fix its internal ordering. Entry 10 the human embassy is now constructed and functional. Trade flows between our two people and all is going well. I anticipate a bright future for our species. I returned the ambassador's subcolony. It occupied a fairly large vat by the time he took up residence and was becoming a bit of a pain to manage. I suppose it should have been caring for itself if everything had gone correctly. The ambassador expressed gratitude in getting it back. I need more practice reading human facial expressions. I wouldn't have said he looked grateful. Still, it seems I shall get the practice. This will be my last entry regarding the human first contact effort. In the first place, I think we've moved beyond first contact at this point. In addition, I'm moving to a research position. Based on my experience working with the humans, I'm being moved to a team that will study their physiology full-time. I look forward to all I will learn. There is somewhat unsettling, but utterly fascinating. Perhaps when I know more, I'll even try to grow another. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope 
that you have a fantastic day. Cheers. <laughs>